So are you ready? Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Today we're looking at the book of Revelation and our final installment of the Through the Bible series. It's been a long time. We finally got to the end. We win. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Lord, we invite you to come now and speak to us. And this, your word, such a powerful word, such a powerful morning. I pray that you'll use me, your servant, Lord, to bring the word with clarity, with accuracy, with humility, in a way that you want it said. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in the book of Revelation, and what do you do with the book of Revelation in one shot? Well, you look at the context to begin with, like every other book is written by John, the son of Zebedee, four times he identifies himself as, as that person. In the third century, a guy, uh, a guy named Dionysus, he noted that the language of the Revelation was so different from the Gospel of John and from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that he said it must not have been John who wrote it. And so that kind of caught on for a while. But I think that if I were taken up into heaven and shown the things that John saw, my speech would be affected. I think I might write differently about that than writing a letter to somebody So I think John is the author. It was written while John was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The Isle of Patmos was a prison colony of the Romans, and they put bad people there, and they thought he was a bad person because both Nero and uh, who followed Nero? Uh, uh, I probably wrote it down somewhere. Uh, oh, Domitian, they were really big on emperor worship, and so they were really hard on Christians because they refused to worship the emperor. And so off John goes to the Isle of Patmos, and while he's there, he has this unbelievable vision which is the third point of context if you really want to try to get hold of the book of Revelation. It was written in a distinctive literary style or form known as apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic. Um, It was a particular way of writing. It was filled with symbols. Apocalyptic literature is is actually a style. It's filled with symbols. Um, More than 14 nouns, for example, in the book of Revelation are modified with the number seven. Seven was a number of completion. You see seven throughout. It's about completion. And so it was written, it's apocalyptic literature, so it's going to sound different than other literature. Any C.S. Lewis fans in the group? And so you've read Mere Christianity and the Great Divorce and the Problem of Pain and stuff. Have you read the way, but you probably all also read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and some of the other uh, Chronicles of Narnia. And so you see that it's the same person writing in two very different forms, but it's exactly the same person. So to get hold of the book of Revelation, you've got to get yourself in this mindset. There are three general schools of interpretation for the book of Revelation. The first is called preterist. Preterist. And what that means, it's, it's, uh, it says that the book was written as a cryptic kind of encouragement to the believers concerning the events happening at the time 
meaning that most of the book of Revelation from that point of view has already occurred. And so they were in time of intense persecution, and so the symbols Babylon means Rome and stuff like that. So it's kind of cryptically written in a way that they, he could encourage believers in persecution. Um, and, and so from that viewpoint, it says that revelation has already been fulfilled substantially from beginning to end. A, a second uh, form of interpretation is called the idealist school, and that is that the book is a symbolic writing of timeless truths meant to encourage believers in any age and cultural setting. And it does do that, doesn't it? As we read it, we find great encouragement in our own hearts. And so there's a whole like, kind of way of looking at it devoted to that, saying, no, it wasn't just for the first century, uh, but it was for all of us in any age to be encouraged in our walk with the Lord. The third school, and by far the most popular school of interpretation for the book of Revelation, is called the eschatological school. Eschatology is the study of last things, and so the eschaton is a Greek word for last, and so when you see that word eschatology, it's a study of the last things, and so the eschatological view of the book of Revelation is that uh, it talks about things that must take place between the time that John wrote it and the consummation of of history uh, at the return of Christ. He's coming back, right? Are you ready? I'm going to ask you that again. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? We may not make it through this service. Are you ready? And if you're thinking about giving your life to Jesus, if there's an altar call at the end, I wouldn't wait. We may not make it. Do it right now. Ask Jesus Christ into your life. Cover your sin. These are the three viewpoints, main ideas, and I'm talking main, main ideas. There are a lot of ideas in here, is that it's a call for believers to hold fast to Christ and to persevere in the midst of intense persecution. Remember, we've talked some about this persecution uh, under which these Christians lived. It was brutal, and so one of the main ideas throughout is hold fast. Remember your first love. Hold on to Christ, right? You're being persecuted. He knows, but it's, and he was himself imprisoned for loving Jesus. Second is an encouragement that the final conquest of Satan is imminent and that believers are sealed for certain victory. Main idea throughout the book is that Satan's days are numbered. You know, when, you know when Satan always tries to remind you of your past? Why don't you remind him of his future in the name of Jesus, right? Why don't you just tell him you know how this works out? You know where this goes. We know. Why don't you just stand in that victory? Hey, Cully, thank you for bringing Lisa and Atul, by the way. It just as you guys were sitting there, I was thinking we wouldn't have Atul as an elder had you not loved, loved your neighbors. And then um, the third main idea in the book of Revelation is that a prophetic, it is a prophetic picture of the splendors of heaven. If you read throughout, it's like, and then, and then, a door opened, and then, right? And this is what I saw, and it's like, boom, this is what heaven's going to be like, right? 
So these are the main ideas, and I know I'm moving pretty fast because I want to get to this hot spot so bad, and I know we're already kind of working on the clock pretty hard. Revelation chapter 4. If you're new, what I like, what I've done and is I've just picked one place, what I felt was the leading of the Holy Spirit, to camp for a few minutes and see what God wants to say. Wade read it for us, the larger passage, just a little bit ago, but I want you to look specifically at this picture of heaven beginning in verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. These 24 elders are caught up in this continuous cycle of praise. This picture is so, so powerful. There is so much splendor about this one who sits on this throne with this encircling rainbow and this glassy sea in front of him. There's so much, there's so much splendor. Things that, that if we were making a picture of God, we would never think to include these four living creatures, this ox, man, eagle, what was the fourth thing? Lion thing, right? With eyes everywhere and six wings each. We, this, is, this is outside of our framework, isn't it? And this is the splendor of heaven. And these 24 elders around this throne, who are they? It never tells us who they are. Who are, who are. How did they get to be there? My best speculation, and it's speculation on my part, is that this is a picture of the ultimate heaven where Israel has been redeemed and where the church is together. And that the 12 of the elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 of the elders represent the apostles. And so I see this beautiful union of Israel in the church before God worshiping him day and night. I'm just a farmer from Grove City though, so... Wow. What a picture. And this is speaking of a day yet to come. He said, yes, and then a door opened. I went through the same voice that sounded the trumpet voice. <laughs> and I went, and this is what I saw. And it's speaking of a day I've come to come, and yet it speaks of such an important timeless principle that it's, it's, it's really just invaded my space and is blowing my mind. And that is today, as I looked at this and this week, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that praise is a language spoken in both directions. Praise is a language of heaven. Praise is a language of heaven. We praise God in worship and then he praises us. Not in worship, don't. But he praises us back. That praise is a language of heaven meant to be experienced by us now. These 24 elders, 
They bow down, and what do they do? They cast their crowns before the throne, right? They bow down and they cast their crowns. The verbiage in this in Greek is that this thing keeps happening. Some of your, some of your translations in verse 9 will say, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks. Well, when are they not doing that? Because it says day and night, they never stop doing it. And yet then it flips and it says, now whenever they do this. So whenever they start it up again, what do the elders do? What do the elders do, church? They bow, they cast their crowns before the Lord. How did they get their crowns back? They cast their crowns, but somebody keeps putting it back on their head. Somebody keeps putting the crown back on their heads. This is the response of our Father as we bow down before Him and as we cast our crowns before Him. He puts the crown back on. So we're ready for next time. Are you getting this return volley, this echo of praise from God? Are you getting it? It sounds almost heretical that God would praise us, doesn't it? It sounds like, why? Because you're mixing some things up. God doesn't worship us. Praise is our language of worship to God. And then he praises us back, not to worship us, but to do what? Praise. Praise, we've talked about this, is different from thanksgiving. We thank God for what he does. We praise him for who he is. So we praise him for who he is, regardless every blessing, you desert, abundance, I'm going to praise you. We praise him for who he is. That's our worship of him. And he echoes a volley back. I'm going to praise you for who you are, Ken. You are my beloved son in whom I am. I yep, and the crown goes back on. Have you had a perfect week? Have you ever had a perfect week? So that praise is not contingent on your behavior. It's contingent on your identity. Because we... We miss, where's Anita? Anita, the dog trainer. We, we shouldn't use this word praise your dog when he does well, but we do, don't we? Praise him. Hey, he came. Praise him now. No, that's really commending him, isn't it? In this, I mean, do what you want at this shop, but I'm just saying, it's the word we use. Praise him for that. Praise, and so praise becomes a commendation for good behavior. Is that why we're praising God? Is, are we commending him for good behavior? <laughs> we're praising him for who he is. And he praises us back for who we are because in us he sees himself. This is blowing my mind. It's been hidden in plain sight for 40 years to me. Some of you are still looking at me like, I don't think you should be talking like this, Tom. God praising us. Okay, well, let me let Jesus talk to you then. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5.
John chapter, oh, same guy, huh? Yep. John chapter 5. So the Jews, who, the unbelieving Jews in this case, they're challenging Jesus for who he is. And he's, in his response to them, which is a little long, he, he says something stunning in verse 44. Remember, they don't believe. And he says, how can you believe, John 5, 44, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. Jesus says there's a praise that God wants to come, and it is meant to be to us, not a worship, a praise. There's my son. There's my son. And it's meant to restore your identity. Boom. That's my son. That's praise. And he looks and he says, because Jesus is in you, has covered you, because Holy Spirit lives in you, he looks at you and sees himself. And he sees holiness in you. Did you have a perfect week? Ever have one? No? So this isn't built on behavior. He sees holiness in you because you're surrendered to Christ, the blood of Christ flowing through your veins, right? That's your only hope, right, John? And he praises you. I praise you. You're my son. You're my son. I praise you. You belong to me. I praise you. I don't worship you. I praise you. Not because of what you've done. Not good job praise, but good son. Remember when your kids were small and they fit in that little spot right here? Remember? Come on, people. Some of you there, you got them. And they sit there and they're so quiet. And they just sit there and you look down at them before they, you know, when they're in the pre-human stage, you know, before they get ideas and stuff, you know. Yeah. And you praise them, don't you? You don't worship them. We don't worship our kids. You praise them knowing that they're going to grow up to disappoint you. Just the way you did your parents. There'll be some things that happen along the way, right? But you hold them in your arms. There you go. Look down there. Remember that? They're off in class now. They're all, they don't sit still like that anymore, do they? And they talk back sometimes. And, but you praise them because you see yourself in them. This is, the essential, this, this is the picture of heaven, these elders who are our leaders. They're the ones who are there before us. I don't know who my elder is going to be. I, we'll figure that out, I guess. But there's somebody before the throne keeps bowing down whenever these beings start up, which is all the time, just bowing down, putting the crown down. And it cycles through. And I, I don't, this is, this is extrapolation on my part, but perhaps the Lord gets up from the throne and goes, one, <laughs> two, three, four. 
This is, this is why I so yearn for you all to enter into worship. So that you, you'll hear the volley back. <laughs> Zephaniah. Somebody turn to that Zephaniah book. Zephaniah. It's in a, some of you aren't going to because it's small and you're afraid you embarrass yourself looking for it. I get that. Those minor prophets, see, they can be tough. Zephaniah chapter 3. You, many of you have heard this, but I don't know if you've heard it all. Zephaniah chapter 3. It's page 918 in my Bible, which is probably irrelevant for you. I only tell you that I wrote it down so that I would not embarrass myself looking for it in front of you all. Let's start in 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Now remember, this is before Christ. The application extends through the cross to us. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. Has he taken away your punishment? On the cross. Has turned back your enemy. Has he turned back Satan? The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Catch this now. Do not let your hands hang limp. I was a little rough on some of you this morning, wasn't I? Well, I like to come to this church because you don't tell us to do stuff. This morning you made me feel bad because I'm not a hand raiser. Do not let your hands hang limp. In other words, he's saying that if you were a person who were still under punishment, who was still enslaved by the devil, could understand why when the song goes off, you go, yeah, whatever. But he said, that's not the case anymore. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's the part we like to celebrate. That God is somehow rejoicing over us. We're rejoicing under him. He's rejoicing over us. Let's keep reading. We never do. The sorrows for the appointed feasts, remember they were commemorating the sorrows, I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, and that's this time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I, can, are you ready? Are you ready for this next one? I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. I, God is saying he will give some people praise and honor. Not worship. Praise and honor. He'll celebrate who they are. He'll celebrate their identity. Woo! Oh, it gets a little better. 
at that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. This is the day of the restoration of fortune in God. We are his beloved. It's hidden in plain sight. The thing I love about worship, I could never explain it before this, is that he praises back. I thought it was an echo. But it's God, the Father. Saying, why why are you living there? When it just comes back, that's my daughter. Not because of what you do, but because of who you are. Are you in Christ, Abby? Did you have a perfect week? You ever have a perfect week? This is is what we're doing here when we worship God. We're worshiping Him with praise. And then He's worshiping, not worshiping, He's praising back, not worshiping. I love that passage. It says, in, that, in our passage in the beginning, he said, I heard the trumpet and there was a door. Show that door. There was a door, he said, and I went through the door. This is what worship is. It's, it's gone through the door. You, you can't worship in the dark. You can sing songs. But it's the door. You know, when those guys worshiped, they worshiped when they heard back. Those elders, when they put their face down, what were they putting their face up to? The glassy sea. What would they see in the glassy sea? A reflection of themselves in the splendor of the presence of God. That's what worship is. It's the restoration of your identity as a child of God. Changes everything. Come through the door.